Thanks for joining us this week on the show. I know you're going to get so much out of this conversation with my friend, Dr. Forrest Jones, who after a career as a family physician has made it his new mission to help other physicians have the kind of conversations with their patients to ease and optimize their end of life progression. And now he's reaching out to work with caregivers and family members as well to facilitate the conversations that aren't always easy, but are of the most importance. Lots of great insights, ideas, and resources in this conversation. So if you're a caregiver, if you're someone who likes to be prepared as we all should, I know you're gonna get a lot of value out of this conversation today. Enjoy. Living in a stressful world doesn't mean you have to give up on happiness. Instead, you can shift your perspective of stress and discover how to live your life in flow. Welcome to Happified. I'm your host, Susie Vine. Join me for inspiration and interviews with folks who are shining their light in the world in the areas of positive mindset, health, and wellness. I'm so happy to have you here. Let me ask you a question. How do you answer when stress calls? It comes in on lots of different channels these days, sometimes as white noise and sometimes with bells and whistles blaring. You may try to power through, working harder and pushing yourself to the limit in the hopes that doing all you can will be enough to get you through. Stress can feel heavy, ominous and maybe hiding inside of any new email or notification on your computer. What if, instead, you see stress as an opportunity to rise and thrive? What if stress not only strengthens you, but fuels your success? It's not a dream, and it's not a secret that's exclusive to the power players. If you shift your perspective, you can empower yourself to enjoy a radical shift in how you show up to stress and how stress shows up in your life. Want to learn more? I have a special report for you that shares some tools you can easily incorporate to start putting stress to work for you. It's available for free at happifiedlife.com. Click on the gift button to pick up your report today. Thank you for joining us this week on the show. I am so excited and honored to share the studio this week with Dr. Forrest Jones. Dr. Jones has a background in family medicine for 40 years and has helped primary care clinicians succeed with their end of life conversations, not always an easy topic, and gain greater professional satisfaction by using those conversations to give dignity and empowerment to their patients. He also is on a mission to help families have better presence and management of their loved one's care as they are moving through the process of end of life. Something we all know that we are heading for, but these conversations can be difficult to have. So I'm excited to have this physician's perspective on the show to talk about why these conversations are so important. Dr. Jones, thank you for joining me. 
I'm not sure who's more excited and honored, you or me. <laughs> Thank well, you for inviting me. It's absolutely my pleasure. Ever since we connected and you are back in my heartland in Chicago, and so it's always a joy to reconnect. I love the art that you have there behind me. The music and the vibrance of the city is definitely something that's still close to my heart. So, And our topic is two, and it doesn't seem like one that people would want to spend time with. So all the more reason to bring it on the show. Sure. <laughs> In my prior work, as I worked with senior clients um, as a move manager, I was helping them move out of their home and into mm. often retirement communities where they might need a higher level of care. Maybe they weren't still able to be independent in their homes. But I saw people at this point of life where changes were happening and we're not usually comfortable about taking a real honest look at that. And I also saw the influence that had on their adult children. Mm -hmm. um, helping them through that process. And so when I heard about the mission of your work, I was really, really thrilled to have this perspective also, because a doctor might be willing to have this conversation. Rarely do I think that they have the time that they might wish, um, but then their patients or those families might not be receptive either. So thank you for forging into this space, because I think it's, we really need to start bringing down the stress and the fear around this so we can know what to expect and what's possible. Agreed. <laughs> so uh, tell us a little bit about your career and and how this became clear to you that even, you know, at a point where most physicians after a career would take that permission to relax and slow down a little bit, you've still got a lot on your mind and your heart to bring forward. So I'd love to hear about that. For sure, because when I was, when we think about caregivers, we also think about power of attorney. So I was power of attorney, medical power of attorney for our parents. And we were really fortunate. I was, I feel myself fortunate because I have a brother who was the financial power of attorney. And actually I think that's the harder job. <laughs> and it really starts in full swing after the loved one passes on. So basically I kind of handed the baton to him at that point, but up to that point, I was still practicing and I recognized I was not having these conversations with my own patients. And I thought, hmm, I'm, I called myself doing a good job, but I never really got around to this and didn't realize how important that is and how much of a service it can be for my patients. And so I said, okay, I'm gonna do this. Well, it was too hard. <laughs> I ran in all the challenges you can imagine, a shortage, shortage of time and even, though here in the United States, um, we do get, we can bill for one advanced care planning visit a year, but something would always come up. You know, uh, I'd be running late, the patient might be running late, they might have something else that that time they think is more important that they have to address. And so many things and we end up kicking the can down the road and it just never happened. And so I basically came up with a system where I kind of broke the process and the conversation down into components. Kind of like with our history and physical, when I was in medical school, my first one took me two hours. And so if you think of an advanced care planning conversation or visit as everything done at once, that was like that whole H&P. But when we actually in practice, we don't do that whole thing. Maybe some doctors will do it at the first visit when they're first meeting you because they want to try to get as much information, but it doesn't happen after that. We break it down into components that we work with 
um, as we can and as our need demands. And so I thought, let's try to do the same thing with advanced care planning conversation. Now, what was interesting to me was once I took the initiative to try to have elements of these conversations, it really helped my connection because I started to see my patients as people because I would be asking different types of questions and it fueled my curiosity and, and actually empathy. You know, and to me, I define empathy as being willing to see the issue through my patient's eyes and also to see solutions through my patient's eyes. So it became more of an action word, not just a feeling word. Mm, and I think that's really important because, I mean, personally, I've been very lucky and I haven't had to spend a lot of time in specialists offices, mm -hmm. but I do feel like uh, physicians and surgeons in practice for a period of time and under the pressures that they experience in their offices, you know, uh, out of a sense of kind of self-preservation and honoring your patient's privacy, there's, there's a kind of a, a little space there, right? Yes. That rarely is crossed. And so these kinds of questions where you're asking and they might be inspired to say, oh, my children or my, you know, sibling had this experience or you, you have that opportunity suddenly to learn a bit, a little bit more that's, that's never on one of the forms. So that can be really insightful. Some doctors, um, part of it might be uh, personality. Part of it might be our training and the environment of the school we grew up in and the models that we saw, how we handle that. And um, that's an issue I really do try to address in um, my work, but I try to help doctors um, have a different view or mindset. So I'm thinking if we can fuel the doctor's curiosity and their empathy as an action word, we can lean into it. Another thing I'd like to help our doctors with is, because some doctors have that professional distance as a way of expressing their expertise. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and for something like this, especially if you talk about advanced care planning, we really are coaches and partners it's not just I give you the plan and then you have to execute the plan because we're not the ones who actually have to carry that out. 90% of the work is actually done by the caregiver and the person themselves. Administering the medication, going to all the visits, having to explain these, uh, the plan and the goals to other family members, caregivers and uh, decision makers in the family. So the heavy lifting is really by the caregiver and the patient themselves. I want to be the expert partner, the one that they can look to to help them carry out their goal. And even to define the goal. And I'm so glad that you uh, brought that into the conversation because um, caregivers do play such an important role and the stress that they experience can start to impact their health and certainly to feel like they're in a partnership with you know the expertise of the medical care medical provider who's understanding the part that everyone is playing in this situation 
And so I appreciate that you're bringing your perspective to their um, their role, what is placed upon them, and how this all plays out and comes together. Um, do you see many caregivers accompanying their patients, your patients, into the office, or was that ex your experience, or do you think that's something that's becoming more common now? You know, it really depends on the functional level of the patient, the person that they're caring for. So um, if someone is still quite functional, able to make their own decisions, especially, the caregiver doesn't have to be there. Um, I like to try to have them come in about once a year if possible so that we can actually connect and they really can get caught up on what's really going on and I can hear their questions and expectations. Grateful for um, cell phones because many care, you know, many if not most caregivers are still working and have a hard time getting away or they may be short on PTO time and things like this. And so we can just arrange a time where we can do a conference call. And I'll just put my phone on speaker and then we're all there and we're talking. And that's been a big help, especially when the caregiver's out of state as well. Definitely, because um, uh, we've talked before about the role that different siblings can play. One might end up just as, as you shared, um, as financial power of attorney, another may be medical care of attorney. There's a lot of, well, there's potential for things to get lost in communication, but also different priorities or understanding. And so being able to get all the parties into the same conversations helps to save that, that game of Absolutely. telephone that we all remember as kids, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> You're too then, young to remember that. Oh, yeah. Tin cans and strings. <laughs> right. <laughs> treat yes. <a> treat. <laughs> One thing that you said earlier that I was unaware of, and I, I wonder if this is common for our audience too, is that there's an annual advanced care planning visit that is provided for in our benefits. And I, yes. I'll bet most people are letting that go unused. Probably, they may not be aware of that. Let me add something else that I think is very useful is um, now uh, with the Affordable Care Act, one of the provisions is to get a printout, you to get a printout of the visit, which includes the list of diagnoses and medications and allergies and things like that, so that you have a record and also you can go back and review it to make sure everything is accurate. I found that as a key point for my starting my conversation, because what I would do is, well, it, it was actually my patients who taught me how to do this. <laughs> They, we have diagnoses that we will record, but it's really for our purposes and from our viewpoint. And so, for example, I'll have a diagnosis, congestive heart failure, basically based on a small change in the echocardiogram. That's a screening echocardiogram that many offices will give seniors or those who have any high blood pressure or risk factors for heart failure in the future because we want to get proactive. So my patient will come in all alarmed. Dr. Jones, you never told me I had heart failure. And I'm thinking, no, your heart is fine. We just see some very early changes that help us to monitor. Maybe do a little better job on your blood pressure, a small adjustment if necessary, but no, you're doing fine. And so that helped me to key in on this particular aspect. 
why don't I look at the whole list of diagnoses down there? Let me select for my clinical judgment, the one that might be most life limiting for you eventually. And we'll build our planning around that. So when we talk about advanced care planning, we're not talking about generalities and abstract things and so forth. We can actually key on something that's in your history now. And then I can build your understanding, assess your understanding and build some plans because that diagnosis does have a trajectory from today to the end that we all know medically, but we haven't had a chance to talk about it, and you may not understand it yourself. And then if there's no such diagnosis that's outstanding, we'll pick frailty and dementia because over half of that, half of us, that will be our situation. We will have frailty that will advance to the point where we, know we lose our independence and eventually pass on. And that might include dementia as well. And so if there's nothing else like heart, cancer, lung issues and so forth or other neurologic issues, frailty and dementia is most likely to be the one that has a trajectory as well. And believe it or not, just to sum it up real quick, talking about that has been a way I could really motivate a lot of my patients to get more physically active because physical fitness is the most important benefit you can give to maintain independence and to really help you negotiate that particular trajectory of frailty and dementia. Wow, these are such good points because it is easy to misunderstand that after visit summary that I've noticed come through in the digital files, but who often usually logs back in and pulls it up and weeds through the words, geeks like myself, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> but it's great to bring it home and say, you might not be feeling the effects of this, but here's where your labs are starting to indicate we're going to be paying attention or mm -hmm. this medication is for this purpose. Again, you might be feeling fine, but this is what you can begin to expect as it advances because aging isn't kind unless we're very proactive and then that's a beautiful way to bring into the conversation too the power of activity and movement especially to to keep that bone density and muscle strength strong because it is unfortunately the case that a fall can take someone who is still very healthy and make a real sudden and drastic change in their their outlook I'm so glad you mentioned bone density, because one thing I learned is when I start talking about the end of the, of the trajectory, now we can talk about what opportunities we have now to make your life better today. And I was coaching a doctor and she was saying, well, most of my patients are not seniors, they're younger. And I thought, you know what, um, this still applies because for your younger women, now's the time to build the bone density. When you get past menopause, there's some things you can do, but you may end up having to rely on medication. But now, if you're in your 30s, we can, this is how that applies for you today in terms of your physical activity, weight-bearing exercises, and your diet. Even teenagers whose diet is cola and chips, <laughs> not good for bone density. But now we have something that we can help uh, to motivate even young people. 
Yeah, that's such a great point. And certainly what I like to share or inspire people to do is make the smaller changes now rather than have to make the radical shift later on, because then we're even more entrenched in our ways, our habits. And, you know, we're up against a health situation, so we're already not feeling great. You know, then we're definitely craving some of those comfort foods and we're low on energy and and everything else that makes it more difficult to bring about the change that we need. So I'm Absolutely. a big proponent of making change the easy way or taking the lazy path to better health when it's it's smaller habits that we're building instead of having to really transform ourselves. Absolutely. So thanks Absolutely. for that reminder. Yeah. And um so as well as your work with other physicians, which I'm so grateful for, because I think, as we've already said, time is tight. Um, there's so many other things demanding physicians' attentions now. Everything is in a computer screen, so you're trying to fill in all the fields and be able to click through to the next window. It's a very different animal than it used to be. Um, beyond helping physicians be present to the potential of these kinds of conversations, where do you see how caregivers can be more active or help to advocate for their family members or the people in their care? How do you think this conversation can be growing or how can caregivers help in these situations? Let me give you three points. Um, and believe it or not, I've came up with these points by um, Ivan Ilyich, the death of, uh, Ilyich, Ivan, oh, uh, Leo Tolstoy, The Death of Ivan Ilyich. And that's a short story that really was so eye-opening to me. I got it on audiobook and listened to it over and over again because it's such an engrossing story. And it's really about this guy who suddenly had an illness that caused him so much pain that it disabled him, um, took him out of the society that he was in that he valued so much as far as his self-image until he eventually died. And it talked about the changes that he went through from just questions about what's going on with me and then how the chronic pain, which his family members and loved, loved ones couldn't really see, started to isolate him. And we see this a lot with people with chronic illnesses and, as, and of course toward dying also, where isolation becomes a part of it because nobody seems to connect with your experience. And then he eventually did come to terms with it. So out of it, I came up with three questions that I think your listeners might find helpful. We can answer these three questions. That'll help us to grasp what's going on um, and to take effective action. So the first one is, What's going on really? How am I really? If you're the patient. The second is, what does it mean? And the third is, what do I do? So the first one, how am I really, is a way of kind of getting a handle on what stage am I in the illness? Am I healthy? Am I not healthy? What is it? Now, you don't have to have a medical degree to answer, to have that, understand the answer. Basically, your goal is to understand the answer well enough to create a goal that's reasonable and meaningful and achievable. I, I would include achievable under reasonable. 
And I want to make that distinction. You really want to get both, but sometimes it can be in conflict. So you can imagine a situation where the reasonable thing is this person will never get better. But that's not the answer you want. That's not the answer you can accept. You're not ready to accept that yet. So meaningful to you means I want my loved one to fully recover, return to their level of independence and love of life and the role in my life and the support, you know, that relationship that, that I've come to love and, and even depend on sometimes. And so there may be a conflict, but really you want to resolve that because the goal has to achieve both of those. And sometimes there's a, a journey to actually arrive at that. And so your doctor needs to be patient with you and to help you. And so I'm thinking if you reframe the question in that way of what's going on, it's like, what do I need to know that would help me to have a goal? We're going to the doctor, we're taking these medicines, you're saying we need to do these procedures or we need to do physical therapy or, or just maintenance to achieve what end? And if you're the caregiver, it really starts with a conversation with the loved one that you're taking care of, ideally, while they're still able to explain, if they're willing to be honest with you. <laughs> because sometimes that's a challenge right there with the caregiver, because the relationship may be such that that's difficult as well. The dynamic of your relationship can be a factor that can kind of complicate your ability to set the goal. But the goal is really the the loved ones, you are really there to help them achieve their goal. That's what it really comes down to. Let me put it that way. You're really there to achieve, help them achieve their goal. Do they have a sufficient understanding so that we can have a goal that's both reasonable, achievable, and meaningful to them? Uh, let me just say real quick here that when the loved one chooses a caregiver, they really need to choose someone who is capable of carrying out their wishes, not the loved one's wishes. Let me put it, not the caregiver's wishes, because you may pick one child who emotionally is not able to let you go when the time comes. And I've seen so many situations where the loved one, the patient being taken care of is only hanging on because they're trying to be strong for the caregiver. And they may go through lots of suffering, a lot of suffering. And they're tired, they're worn out, but they're trying to hang on because they're trying to be a good mom. They're still trying to be a good mom. That can be so sad but um, you can you can understand what's going on there, and that's one of the challenges of living, isn't it? So true, and I'm so glad that you brought that up and and illustrated it that illustrated it, but also to give us the insight from the care the care providers, the medical professionals' perspective, because to see this process and to know your patient to understand that the patient's wishes, you know, they've made peace with the process. They understand the outcome. 
but the family behind, right? I mean, that's really the difficulty of death is to make peace with the fact that we're not going to have this person in our lives anymore, but that's not for that person, the care receivers place to help us make peace with these things. It really is important for the caregiver, especially when then we bring in family dynamics, siblings or other people who are in different places and have different levels of peace with the process. Um, because I, I, I understand and I've seen and, you know, we always hear stories of just like you illustrate, you know, people hanging on. Struggling to remain with us because they know the people who will be staying behind, you know, they worry, will they be able, will they be okay? Will they carry on? Okay. So it is a lot of responsibility that caregivers take on, not only in navigating the care, but in also having peace with that choice and honoring that choice and not intervening at the last minute and saying, no, 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 let's try something else after the patient has already acknowledged this is the process that, that they choose to be on. There's yeah. a lot that goes into it. And, and just as we said, I think at the beginning, um, the conversations can be difficult to have in the first place. And then as um, situations progress, as level of care needs grow, you know, these conversations need to come back around. Having it once isn't enough mm -hmm. to say, okay, we got it settled, we're good, off the list. <laughs> exactly, and that kind of comes to the second question of what does it mean? Because then we wanna know, from the perspective of the patient, the one whose life we're talking about, what are their expectations? And also the caregivers, what are their expectations? And how do they work, work through that? And then also we understand that that's gonna change over time. So you have, might have a situation where the patient will say, when I get to this point, just let me go. But then as they get close to the point, they may change their mind and say, you know what, I think I really want to have this uh, intervention, that intervention, and so forth. And then we can actually have a discussion at that point. Recognizing too, I'll just throw this in, where there's, off, there's usually a gray zone. There, there's not always a time when you, there's a clear cut line where Okay, now we see obviously that interventions won't, life prolonging inter interventions won't help. There's often a gray zone and you have to kind of go back and forth. We want to allow for that. And uh, you want to have a plan for how we negotiate that as well. So, yeah. Let me just say this real quick, right in that same context. A paradox of, of life. <laughs> Most people have told me, and I think I agree, that when it's my time, I want it over quick. You know, I just want to go to bed and just not wake up. That's how most people say for themselves. But for their loved ones, that's the last thing they want. Because if that happens, they think, oh, I didn't have a chance to say goodbye. I wasn't ready. Or why didn't they tell me that they were they were that sick, um, they didn't have time to have any closure. And so that's just kind of a paradox. Most people don't want a long drawn out you know, event of their ending of life, but for their loved ones, even though that can be difficult, it gives them opportunities for, for uh, closure. And I don't have an answer to that one. <laughs> they just have to be supportive 
and you just recognize that we're all human and that's just how uh, we react. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And that's definitely some good food for thought and hopefully some consolation for people who might be feeling that they didn't have conversations they wish they had, that maybe they missed something or, you know, failed in some way because someone passed suddenly that for that loved one, you know, without weeks or months of navigating illness and treatments and everything else that could be mm -hmm. affecting their quality of life. So there can be blessings sure. even in those. those well, I learned that when I noticed um, the times when the patient had near-death experiences, they might've had advanced uh, heart disease or whatever, and they actually either came close to dying or either did die, but were revived by uh, CPR. And then the family will come back, the, the caregiver will come back and say, you know what? When they finally did pass on, I was ready because when they had the near death event, I went through all the sense of loss at that time, but they came back and I was able to really engage. And so when their time finally came, I felt that I had achieved everything and had the closure that I needed. And we just never know. Do we, we never know which we story know. is going to be written. We sure don't. <laughs> and I, we probably don't need to know because being the emotional creatures that we are, that probably wouldn't help. <laughs> wouldn't help me. <laughs> Doesn't help a doctor either. <laughs> right, right. We don't need that crystal ball. It isn't uh, the That's relief right. that we imagine it might be. <laughs> so we've got, how am I really? And mm -hmm. what do I want? Yeah. What does it mean? Thank you. How, how am I really? What does it mean? Thank you. And all this is part of trying to decide on what goals make sense. And then the third question is, what do I do? Is the action plan where we put all this into action. So once we've come to a goal that we agree on is achievable and reasonable and meaningful, now we have to execute it. And so I would say that the caregiver wants to use these words, doctor, I need an action plan. Now we do have action plans already created for heart failure and different types of cancer therapies and asthma and so forth. And so for whatever that potentially life ending diagnosis is for you, there may be an action plan already there. And those action plans do several things. One, they tell you what signs and symptoms to look for when things change in a significant way. And then they have information about what do you do? What kind of adjustments can you make at home? And what do you really need to go to the emergency room for? And so they will usually be in terms of a green zone, yellow zone, red zone, green zone, everything's hunky-dory, just to do maintenance. Uh, yellow zone, here are some signs and symptoms that let you know that you've moved from the stable maintenance condition into an unstable condition. And the yellow zone means it's unstable, but we can still manage it with the resources we have at home or maybe the doctor's office. But if you see certain other indications and signs, that means don't hesitate, 
go to the hospital. And I think that's helpful because for the caregiver and the patient, it gives you a sense of control. And you don't have to worry, keep looking around, okay, what am I doing the right thing? And for the doctors and especially the um, chief medical officers uh, who are looking at, was that emergency room visit really necessary? Was that really the best thing? Was that hospital visit really the best thing? Well, if you're the caregiver and you don't know, you're going to default, default to the emergency because you don't want this on your hands and you're not knowing what to do and you're freaking out and you're just scared to death and you really want to be sure that you're doing the right thing. And also, you don't want a situation where family members are criticizing you because you didn't do this or that. So if we give you guidelines in your action plan, then also it becomes a way for you to give the doctor feedback on what you don't understand or what resources or support you need. Because as doctors, we, we may assume a lot. And in a very brief visit, we may assume too much. And so the action plan gives you a way to push back and say, doc, okay, I got that part, but I can't get away for this or that because my job I can't get away like that, or we don't have this at home, or I had trouble getting the prescription refilled. Can you help me with that? Or I don't have the skills for this. I don't know how to do this. I need someone to show me how to do this. And so then the doctor now has information to know how they can help you succeed. And prevent, like you said, um, unnecessary yes. trips to emergency because mm -hmm. people really don't want to go to the, I mean, who wants to, Friday evening, let's go to the emergency room. I really <laughs> like that. I don't really want to do that. <laughs> no. <laughs> so if people can avoid it, you know, especially around holidays, you know. So um, that's why we know that the day after the holiday is when we're going to get swamped. Because <laughs> people thought they needed to go on the holiday, but they put it off. But if they didn't really need to go because the action plan walk them through this, that's even better. Yeah, definitely a case where knowledge is power and yes. it takes off stress, that stress yes. of trying to make a decision in mm -hmm. the midst of an emergency, yes. in the midst of concern over your loved one. And you can, and that gives you a piece to defend yourself if you need to by family members, because sometimes a caregiver may not be the big mouth <laughs> in the family. Mm -hmm. The big mouth in the family is the one who lives states several states away, never involved with the care, but they always have something to say. And they really want to run it, but they don't want the responsibility. <laughs> we all know who they are, you know. So. <laughs> they have a gift of timing, don't they? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But if they can show the action plan and we followed this, this, and this, and this is what the doctor gave me, and this is what we did, argument settled. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's just emotional um, injury that we don't need to be experiencing at those yes. points in time. Absolutely. We need to be focused on the, the person who's in the center of the care. Absolutely. 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 And so for our listeners, and as you continue to um, create the programs that you're developing, you have an invitation for folks who would like to get in touch with you. Yes, they can reach me at um, my email, 
fjones at caringin.com. And if they can put in the subject line, caregiver course, because I really want to reach out to caregivers before I design the course to find out what do they really need and want to succeed. Yeah, there's a couple of points because the caregiver has to communicate with the loved one, the patient, as well as the doctor. And they want to get it right both ways and the doctor can be helpful. Um, and so I like when I talk with um, caregivers who might be interested in working with me, helping me put this together, I like to know where their pain point is, where their biggest challenges are in carrying out their role uh, in both those aspects. I want to be able to provide some real help. And it is so important because I was surprised when I worked in the senior service industry to learn that it is not even uncommon. It's, it's typical that caregivers are affected by stress and often become sick and often need care themselves. So we can't underestimate the stress of stepping into this role. And we can be proactive in managing that by looking for the resources that we need and finding the best ways to support ourselves. So this is a wonderful invitation. Can I add something to that? Yes, um, please. Uh, caregiver stress is real. Um, burnout is real. And I like to be, especially if the caregiver is a spouse, they could actually pass on before the loved one that they're caring for. And I've actually um, mentioned that to advocate for the caregiver, partly to help the caregiver give permission to themselves to take a break. So one thing I would try to achieve, and I let them know, I said, what I want you to do, I want you to be able to take off a week or two every three months and at least a three day a weekend or three days every month. Because if you're not, and they say, well, I can't do that. I can't be away. I said, well, if you're not here, who's going to take care of them? They probably will be in a long-term care institution if you're not there. So let's protect you. And I also would use the same thing if uh, there are other family members who could help but are not. And I would make the same point. I said, you have to be there to help the caregiver get away to that one or two weeks every three months and a long weekend every month, because if they're not, it's going to be on you. So if that's not the outcome you're looking for, let's work together. And, and I'll use that as a, my bully pulpit and my club to get the family involved. <laughs> You know, because it makes it so important. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a powerful point. If it's inconvenient now, imagine how you're going to have to turn the tides to solve the situation when it's all on you. And sometimes, and I also use that for the patient who might be difficult and unreasonable. Mm. That's an issue because I've seen the patient who really takes the caregiver for granted. This might be a, their child. And there's family dynamics there. And the child is bending over backwards and is still never enough. That can be so frustrating. And, and you know, 
it's not unusual for a caregiver's role to be a thankless job. And so I've actually had to talk to the patient and say, and tell me expectations. I said, she's going to be gone two weeks in three, out of three months. And she's going to be gone for a long weekend every month. And you've got to go with it because if she's not here, mm-hmm. you're going to be there. Right. Your choice. And it's worked. It's, it's helped. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we do need those um, straight talk conversations to bring the reality of it home. Um, so, so important. So that was a really also I, I might bring that up because in order to achieve that, the caregiver usually has to find a facility that they can trust uh, while they're away or a family member who has said that they can stay there. And so when they take these breaks, it's also a trial run. Yes. You're testing the system. You're stress testing the system. And so then everyone gets comfortable with all their roles and parts. And so if something happens, maybe the caregiver has something comes up where they have to go in the hospital for a week. So now you stress tested the system. Everybody falls into place. Expectations are there and it's worked. And I've seen that actually help um, them get through those transitions. Yeah. Mm, That's another terrific point too. Thank Mm -hmm. you for that. Hopefully that helps drive it home because we will do things for the people that we love that we won't do for ourselves. And so if you need permission to building these caregiver respites to restore and refresh yourself, then all of these are super important reasons why, even though it might be difficult to train somebody else, to bring them up to speed, to recruit the siblings, to put those plans in place. Again, it's certainly something you don't want to be doing when you're under pressure, when you don't have the time and the ability to put those plans together and they get made for you. That's never good for anybody that's involved. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, F Jones at caringin.com subject line, (laughs) um, caregiver coach, caregiver course, caregiver course. Marvelous. Yes. I think this is so important. I'm so grateful to you for making time to be with me today. Um, our audience might've noticed a couple of internet glitches, but Dr. Jones hung in there with me. So I'm super grateful. And, um, now you know how to get in touch. We'll have the information in the show notes as well. And I'm so happy to see this conversation coming to the medical providers, coming to the family and caregivers. We really do need these kinds of revolutions in our healthcare system. It's, it's not altogether broken. It just needs a little renaissance. So we'll, we'll yes. bring it up to the speed where we need it. Yes. All of us working together. That's right. That's right. And communicating. Thank you so much, Dr. Jones. I appreciate Thank your time you. and joining me. Thanks so much. Thank you. Take good care. Thank you. You too. Bye. Thank you for tuning in today. Check out the show notes for any links we mentioned. To learn more about living life with less stress and more flow, visit happifiedlife.com. And if you found value in today's episode, make sure you subscribe to catch the next one and leave a review to help fellow pod surfers find Happified. Until next time, keep on shining.